Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I am Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Revelation chapter 5. And in this chapter... Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening. We're going to start opening the seals and looking at things. If you're just now joining us for the first time, please know that we, Bryce and I, have covered other chapters previous to chapter 5 in the book of Revelation. So I would suggest highly that you go back and listen to those before getting into the 5th because we get into some of the ways that the text can be read and, and ways that the symbols help to make sense. And I remember, Bryce, the first time reading this book, um, it's different reading it versus, okay, now you have to go teach it. I remember I was a first-year teacher, and I was called by my boss, and he said, we want you to give a, a an hour presentation in front of all your peers on the book of Revelation. And I was literally like a deer in the headlights. I remember reading this going, okay, what what do I even emphasize? I can really feel for the teachers out there that are teaching this, especially with the limited time that we have. And so I think what Bryce and I are trying to do is to go a little bit more detailed so that you can have the background, but certainly you won't teach this stuff. If you have a, a classroom, you have maybe one shot, maybe two at teaching these, but we're trying to give some background here. So Bryce, uh, chapter five, uh, we've talked about this in chapter four, where the question is, who's going to be able to read this? And so he sees in the right hand of the person on the throne, I'm going to say that's the father, uh, he has this book. Bryce, why don't you pick it up from here and talk a little bit about the book oh, the and book. what's going on in uh, chapter 5. Oh, the book, Heavenly Father. So chapter 4 we saw into Heavenly Father's abode, his, into his kingdom, and we saw his glory and his love and how much he wants to save his children. And now John notices the book in in his right hand. Now Joseph asked the question that I'm this is Doctrine and Covenant section seventy seven, which we turn to quite a bit, and thank goodness for modern revelation, which fills in the plain and precious things that have been lost. Um, section seventy seven, verse six, what are we to understand by the book? So we began with the end. We began in heaven and we saw the glory of those who were saved. But how did they get there? What are we to understand by the book which John saw? which was sealed on the back with seven seals. Answer, we are to understand that it contains the revealed will, the mysteries, the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance or its temp temporal existence. In other words, Heavenly Father has a book that contains all the things that he did to get us into his presence. The mysteries, the works, the hidden things, all of the answers to everything that happened, Heavenly Father's purposes for our lives, for every aspect of his creation. I imagine there's a chapter in that book for each one of us, and that chapter is the story of my life and why the things that happened to me happened. What were the hidden things in God's economy for my life? Why did my brother die when I was 16? Why was that something essential for the Dunford family? Why this time period? Why those parents? Why this family? Why those talents? Why these trials? Why did that happen to me? Well, all of those are the mysteries, the works of God, the hidden things of his economy in trying to save me. And I let just before we move on, we just need to pause and understand that that book is written on the front and on the back, which means the story's written. Heavenly Father has a purpose. 
Now, I don't mean to suggest that he's dictating what happens to us as much as he has a plan for me. I have agency and I can choose to push against him. I don't mean to suggest that we're destined. But Heavenly Father is certainly a heavy participant in my salvation and the things that happen to me. And so why that trial? Uh, Mike suffered some medical challenges recently. He's had a stroke and some surgeries on his shoulders. Why that challenge? Why that body? Um, I haven't had surgeries on my shoulders. So why my course? Why is my life right for me and Mike's life is right for Mike and your life is right for you? Well, the answer is in that book. Every one of us have answers. Every one of us have a chapter in that book. Heavenly Father has a plan for each one of us. So before we dive into chapter 5, I just want to pause and say Heavenly Father has a plan. Years ago, Elder Marvin J. Ashton gave a wonderful talk, and in it he said, he talked about a father who was traveling by train and holding his blind daughter on his lap. After a while, a friend sitting next to the father said, let me give you a little bit of rest, and he took the daughter. And then a while after that, the father realized, oh my goodness, she doesn't even know who's holding her. So he turned to his blind daughter and says, do you know who's holding you? And the daughter replied, no, but you do. And Elder Ashton said, wouldn't it be comforting if when the trial happens in our life or challenges and bad things and painful things and things we don't understand happen in our lives and the whispering of the Spirit comes and says, do you know why this has happened to you? We could have the peace of mind to say no, but you do. Brothers and sisters, it's written in his book. The answer is written in his book. And I promise when we read it, it will make sense and it will be wonderful. And we will see a kind, loving God who desires our salvation above anything else on earth. And he's written a plan. So I know that's a little bit of a diversions, but I just, we need to see him. We need to see that he, he has a desire to save us. And in all the things that he's doing, the hidden things, the things he's not telling us are written in this book. Bryce, I don't think that's a diversion. I think that's the point. It is. And, and I don't know if you were planning on doing this, but I'm going to make you go there. I love how you take Jacob five and you say, Hey, this is. Let's personalize this. Yeah. Can you do, are you okay? To, let's do that. Let's, let's do take that. Jacob chapter five. If you want to turn to Jacob five, there's two ways to read Jacob five, and that is a history of the house of Israel. But we can also read it as um, my history, my personal history, what God does in my life. Now, the problem is if you'll look at verse four, verse six, the tree is decaying. If you let trees grow the way they want to grow, they usually don't end up the way that we want them to grow. Which is, I kind of think the whole message of the book of Revelation yeah. is God says, I'm giving you mankind this wonderful earth, and what have Look we done? We done. just mess Look everything up. what you've up. done with this earth. It's just a mess. And so, it, it, verse three, the tree begins to decay, and so the Lord steps in, and he does some minor things like prune it, and dig about it, and nourish it. And it works a little bit, verse 6, but the problem is the tree's going to fall. The tree's going to fall apart. And there are so many times in Jacob 5 where the Lord says, I'm not going to lose this tree. I'm not going to lose this tree. So Jacob 5 is the story of a loving caretaker who is determined not to lose a tree. And that's the book. That's your chapter. I'm not going to lose you. I'm going to do everything in my power to save you. And so notice he does three things to save us. Verse 7, 
He plucks. The act of plucking is taking something in our life and pulling it out. Someone, an opportunity, and he plucks because he loves us and he wants to save the tree. He plucks us. And that is oh so painful. But he knows what he's doing. And his whole goal is to save the tree and bring forth fruit. Because if you let trees go the way they want to go, quite often they don't. And they end up lost. And so he plucks, he yanks things out of our lives. In verse 9, he grafts, which is taking something that I never thought I'd have to deal with, something foreign, something outside of my experience, and yanking and putting it into my life. And but like, just like cancer. Li- like literally so intimate. We're grafting We're it into grafting you. We're like grafting it into you. Like I like how you said cancer. Like it's in you. Anyway. And he grafts. Yeah. He plucks, he grafts, and then in verse 13, he places us. Sometimes he places us in the nithermost part of the vineyard. And sometimes our lives are going great, and all of a sudden he places us in a situation we never thought we'd be in, a place we never thought we'd be in. And all of this is to save the tree. Count how many times he says, it grieveth me to lose this tree, it grieveth me to lose this tree. And the funny thing is, it works. Dadgummit, he knew what he was doing. (laughs) I like verse 22 where he's like, counsel me not. Don't tell me what, let me do my job. Counsel me not, I knew. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Because it works. As soon as he grafts and he plucks and he places, it works. It brings forth fruit. And our tendency the whole time along is to murmur, complain, bellyache. We're doing it today. We did it in Exodus. They did it to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, show us a sign. He's like, I just gave you bread. What do you guys want from me? And so the whole idea here is I'm not going to lose this tree. And then in the, in the parable, there comes a point where all the fruit goes bad. And he asks a, a, a piercing question in verse 41. What could I have done more for my vineyard? And he answers that question in verse 47. And the answer is nothing. Have I slackened my hand? Have I not nourished it? No, I have nourished it. I've dunged it. I've pruned it. I've, do- I've done everything. Now, that's a deep doctrine. Your life is your best chance at salvation. God knows you well enough to know exactly the best way to save you. Every trial you have had. Because the answer is, is there more I could have done? Could I have done something that would have been better? No. Because the implication here is he would have done it. If someone, uh, if some other trial or someone else's life would have been better for you, then this God, this loving God who isn't going to lose the tree would have done that. Your story is your best chance at salvation. Every trial, every person, everything, every part of that book, the hidden things, the things he's not telling you, are your best chance at salvation. And we need to trust him, that he knows what he's doing. Counsel me not. You know, Bryce, I I I remember the first time you and I years ago talked about this chapter, and you personalize it, and I've always taught it as, this is the story of Israel. But if... If I read Jacob 5 and I read about my story, it changes so many ways the way I look at how I was raised, my circumstances. Um, I have a friend who has had horrible things happen to him, and yet um, he's strong for it spiritually. And I just think that this is so – it's just so beautiful, Jacob 5. And so to me, when you said, oh, this is a little bit off the beaten path in this book, and I think – 
no, I think if that's all you take out of Revelation five, I think You're that's yeah. I think that's the that's the money shot right there. You've won. You get what's going on in Revelation five, and really the whole story about the whole this whole story of all these seals. Each and by the way, seals—they're not like the things in the ocean, right? That eat fish. A seal would be the if I had a scroll and I was delivering it to Bryce through a messenger, I would put wax, a hot wax, on the scroll as it was rolled up, and with my signet, my ring, I would put an imprint on there, and so you can see like just a little imprint that says Mike Day hates the Lakers. That would be my seal if I had if I had one anciently. And if I lived in Rome, I would still hate the Lakers, and so I would send that to Bryce, and then he would know nobody's messed with this book, and so. Each one of these seals is going to represent a time period, but the overarching message is God has said, I've given you guys this earth, and it's a mess, and I'm going to send my son to fix it up, right? And that's what I mean by the diversion, because the book is every one of us has a story, every one of us have a chapter, but from here on out, the story we're opening is the earth's story. So from here on out, God has a plan for the earth. Look what's happened. Look what you guys have done to my earth. And now I'm going to send my son and we're going to fix it. We're going to clean it up and we're going to turn it into a sea of glass. That's the diversion. You know, that's where we're going. We're going to tell the story of the earth. But I do, I just want to point out that that book is so, means so much to me because I know Heavenly Father has a plan. I know my birth in this time period at this time with this family, with these talents, with these experiences, are part of a big picture where he knows the best way to save me. And so he chose the life that was my best chance. And he wrote a story. And everything that he's done, all of the hidden things of that economy are so that he can bring about my salvation. Just like he's going to bring about the salvation of the earth. And that's the story we're now going to tell. But I just want everyone to know that. And maybe one more thought about that. The book is sealed. And the only person who can open it is Jesus. You cannot open the book. The answers to your questions will come to you when the Savior wants to open the book, not when you want the answers. Why this happened? Why is that the right thing? You you don't get to open that book. The book is sealed. And Jesus is the only one. And we have to trust his timing when he opens that book and lets us have the answers. Some people get answers in this life. Some people don't get answers until the next life. But we have to trust him that there's a book, there's a story. The story ends well in our, in, in the very best possible blessing he can give us. But right now, a lot of those things remain sealed and he will reveal them when he wants to reveal them. So John notices that the book is sealed. He weeps because no one can open it. And then someone says, no, someone can open it. And it's the Savior, Jesus, the Lamb of God. He hath prevailed to open the book. And so now he's going to take the book and open the portion of the book that is this earth story. Let's tell the story of this earth. What's happened on it? what's currently happening on it, what's going to happen shortly as it becomes a sea of glass. Yeah. So verse one, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book with uh, written within and with on the backside, as Bryce talked about, sealed with seven seals. I want to talk just a little bit about the right hand. The right hand in first century uh, Roman world, it represented 
uh, faithfulness. The Latin is fides, or uh, in Greek is pistis, which is faithfulness or loyalty or trustworthiness. Uh, the right hand represented reciprocity. In two hands that were in a hand clasp represented a complete fidelity in the ancient world. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, he used the phrase to renew right hands meant to renew a covenant or a treaty. And Romans could send right hands in effigy, right hands clasped in effigy uh, to each other before entering into a contract or uh, signifying an alliance relationship. And so this is this notion of pistis or fetus, this this idea of faithfulness was even in Roman coins. We might even put some of this on the on the show notes. A lot of this is going to be revealed in a book written by Brent Schmidt. He's a, a classic scholar and he teaches at BYU Idaho and he's writing a book called Relational Faith. And his whole point of his book is to show readers that in the first century in Jesus' world, the word for faith re- represented a reciprocity, and the symbol was the right hand, even the right hand clasp, as it were. And it represented an alliance. It represented this is somebody that you can trust. And so if you raised your right hand, we do this in church all the time, what we're doing is we're pledging allegiance. We're saying, I signify that um, I will be loyal to this decision. I will support this. And so when this book is in the right hand of the person on the throne, just that phrase, and and the phrase comes up over and over again in the book of Revelation, but it's also in the New Testament. It's this idea that we can, this is somebody that we can trust. It's even on the temple, isn't it, Bryce? Yeah, those of you going down to Temple Square to see the beautiful lights, make sure you find your way. Maybe you can't do this in the dark, but if you'll do it in the light, if you'll go to the east side of the temple and look up above the one, the, one of the doors, the windows, you'll see two right hands clasped in the, together. And notice that they are right hands. So two right hands clasped has made its way on the walls of the temple as a symbol of what we do in that building. Yeah. I, I don't know all the you know all the different ways you can interpret verse four, verse three of chapter five. No man in heaven was worthy, and then in chapter in verse four of chapter five, John says, "I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book." I think one way to look at this is what Bryce has talked about: is how when we see the book of our life, the book of the earth, and we see how God looks at it, uh, we could weep. Certainly, I remember really learning about the history of some of the nations of the earth, and it caused me great consternation. There's the passage in Moses where God weeps, and Enoch says, God, how can you weep? You're holy. And you're almost as if you're removed. Your holiness has removed you from this mess of mortality. And the God of heaven weeps in the book of Enoch is contained in Moses. In other words, God is personally involved. So I think the weeping can go both ways. It can certainly be read many ways. But I really like that verse. It's it's very touching to me. While you're on that subject, let me read that verse. I'm in Moses 7, verse 48. It came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth. So we're going to focus on the earth as an entity. It came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth, and he heard a voice from the bowels thereof, saying, Woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained. I am weary because of the wickedness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my Creator sanctify me that I may rest in righteousness 
for a season abide upon my face. So the earth is weeping, saying, when are you going to finish my story? Tell me how my story ends. Because the earth's history has been one of violence and death and disease and heartbreak and pain. And the earth is crying out, saying, when will I get to rest? When are you going to cleanse me and purify me so that righteousness dwells on me? So that's part of that weeping. And especially as we're, you know, because now we're going to tell the earth's story. We're going to answer that question. We'll tell you when the earth gets to rest because you're going to become a sea of glass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Revelation 5, 5. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. And that's really what Bryce is talking about. It's Jesus that's going to fix it. Clearly, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. I want to talk a little bit about the word root, the root of David. And this is, this is coming from Isaiah, Isaiah 11. And there are so many ways to interpret Isaiah 11. And so I want to just give you a way that is a little bit different, but I think it's significant. And so the word root is reza, and it literally means like a shoot. Uh, imagine, and look in your mind's eye, because Bryce talks about this all the time. You got to look at it. You got to see the Book of Revelation. So this reza, this this shoot that comes out of something, and like I said, this is multi-level. But if you look in chapter eleven of Isaiah, and I believe this is what John is referring to, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And this is unpacked in section 113 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And there's, like I said, different ways to look at this. And the the verse in chapter 11 is kind of clunky in English, in my opinion. So I'm going to do some translating here. Um, There shall come forth a rod. That's going to be a uh, a sprout or a shoot, a coter, like uh, like a new plant. And it's growing out of the stem or a stump. So imagine a stump that's been, you know, the tree's been cut down. And there's a new tree coming out of the tree. Now, the typical interpretation from the Latter-day Saint perspective is in section 113, which I'm not going to talk about because we'll do that when we do Doctrine and Covenants. We'll do it later. But in this context, I believe John is referring to this twig or this, this new tree coming out of the tree as being Christ. In other words, Christ was cut down. He's the stem of Jesse, but he's also the new tree. That's, this is one way to look at it. And so if you go back to chapter 5, verse 5, um, Jesus was killed, but he's also this, this new tree, and there's newness in him. Now, later when we get to section 113, we'll look at this as representing a servant in the hands of Jesse, and he's partly from Ephraim and partly from Judah, and we'll do all that. But I really like this idea that he's a lion, but he's a new tree. So this is, once again, tree of life symbolism, and we're being invited to come into his presence. He's going to be called in verse 6, the lamb that was slain. And then the imagery, maybe Bryce will do this. Look at chapter chapter 5, verse 6. There's this lamb that has seven horns and seven eyes, which is, I mean, if you're looking at that, that's a strange-looking animal. Bryce, what would you do with that? Okay, well, I love this because if you look at the footnote, Joseph changes it. Having 12 horns. Yes. Okay, so hold on. I I want you to picture the head of a little lamb, okay? If you were to put one horn on an animal, where would you put it? Right there in the, you know, like a unicorn, right? Like a unicorn, yeah, narwhal. Two horns, where would you put two horns? Well, that's where cows have their horns. That's where we, where would you put 12 horns? We're talking dinosaurs, stegosaurus maybe, I don't know. Would you do four rows of three? (laughs) No, you do them in a circle, Right. You'd put 12 horns in a circle. So Jesus has a circle of horns 
on his head, kind of like a crown. Do you see it? Now, why 12? We are his crown. We are the crown that he wears. He wears, he is a lamb with, seven, with 12 horns. We are the crown. We are the reason he atoned. We are the, we are the hope that got him through the darkness of the atonement. We are the crown that he wears. And I love that, just a little lamb having 12 horns. Because if you see it, you'll see it. I just, you, you, you wouldn't put four rows of three. You'd put them in a circle. Well, why would Jesus have a circle on his head? That's a crown. 12 points to Israel. We are his crown. Beautiful symbolism. I like that. I like that. So they fall down, the 12 elders. I like what they say in verse 10. That they've been made kings and priests unto, unto the Most High God. This, that's back, hearkening back to Exodus 19. Make us kings and queens, priests and priestesses to reign on the earth, which, Bryce, we've talked about that before. I like verse 11. Uh, you can't even count them. Myriads upon myriads. This is quoting, quoting first Enoch literature, this idea that God is bringing his armies. God's a successful God. And so... Um, that's really what I have on chapter five, unless there's anything you want to add. I Bryce, just want that idea of the root, the, this little tree that's growing up. The, the earth story is filled with violence and, and blood, and the earth, the wicked people on the earth did to Jesus everything that the earth has done. Not the earth, I'm talking about the wickedness. They did to Jesus everything that's been done, and yet he survived, and now he's going to correct it. He is the – you know, after, after destroying him, he is the little twig that they could not destroy, and he's now going to grow up and become the lion that cleanses the earth. I just you, – you begin to see the major character here. The earth tried to destroy him. The people on the earth tried to destroy him and couldn't. Now he's going to cleanse the earth. Yeah. And now we're going to start opening up that book. We're going to open up the seals, and we're going to tell the earth's story – now, most of it's going to be really quick and in the past so that we can get to the end because the earth is crying out saying, when are you going to cleanse me? And Jesus is answering that question. I'm going to fix everything that was broken on this earth. Yeah. I'm going to cleanse the earth. So now we're going to begin to break those seals and open them up one at a time. Okay, so chapter 6, the, each, each of the first four seals is just a couple of verses I'm going to go kind of quick through it and then maybe whatever Bryce wants to pick up on. The first couple of verses of chapter six, there's a white horse with an individual with a crown. He's conquering it. Big picture. If you're doing time periods, if you want to throw this up on a timeline, you know, 4,000 to 3,000 BC, Enoch, we're talking about his people. That's one way to read the text. Uh, the red horse, Peros, is blood red. Uh, 3,000 to 2,000, Noah's period. Uh, he's the dispensation head. The whole earth is filled with violence. We read this in the Enoch literature. It's in the book of Moses. It's in Genesis with the sons of God and the sons of men and some of the mixing there with the giants, which we've talked about before. The black horse in verse 5, uh, this is a time of the patriarchs. But notice the issue happening in verse 6. A measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. That's that's famine language. That's it, very expensive food. Yeah, that's a denarius. So if you worked all day, uh, you could get three measures of barley or a measure of 
wheat. So imagine you're a brick mason and you work all day and you get a loaf of bread or a couple loaves of bread. I mean, we're talking famine. And what's interesting in the book of Genesis, throughout the narratives of the patriarchs, there's all these stories of famine. This is symbolic. This is highly right brain material. In other words, how literal is this? I think this is one of those things where you kind of have to relax your Western mind and read this as an Eastern text. And then finally, the fourth horse in verse 8 of chapter 6, chloros is translated as pale, but chlorine gas is this green color. It's this sickly color. So what's Israel? Israel's sick. This is the period of the apostasy after the king's revolt, um, you know, after Solomon's demise and the nation of Israel and, and Judah split and you know, 920-ish, 950-ish, and then uh, the destruction of the northern kingdom in the you know, 720-ish time period, and then the destruction of the first temple. This is the loss of, of all things. And so from the Old Testament standpoint, this is the sadness of the end of the first temple. I think this is either Psalm 137 or 138, where the daughters of Zion weep along the river in Babylon, and they say, how could this happen to us? And then we get to the fifth seal in chapter 6, verse 9. And John sees under the altar the souls of those that were slain. And how long, Lord, are you going to not avenge our blood? And I love verse 11. White robes were given unto every one of them. These are people in Jesus' day. These are people in John's day that were martyred. It was said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. To me, one of the big martyrs of this dispensation is going to be John, John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist, as a resurrected being, comes to earth and brings the priesthood back, he lays his hand on Joseph and Oliver's head. And what does he call him? My fellow servants. And so this is Mike Damon Rash. I read verse 11 and I just see these people of this dispensation had eyes towards our day. And they're resting until their fellow servants can put the work to, together. And now there, I, I really believe this, that on the other side of the veil, there's a lot of work happening and that these people are involved and that they're, they're mindful of us. Anyway, so that's, that's big picture. First five seals. This is, you know, John looking back in time, Bryce, I went kind of quick. Anything you want to add on that? But you can see the story that Jesus is telling. Look at what has happened on the earth. <clears throat> He's telling the earth story. The earth has been filled with conquest, nation conquering other. It's been filled with war. It's been filled with famine. And a famine is not so much a godly act as a carelessness of human beings. You know, we can prevent a lot of famine by taking better care of ourselves, better care of the earth, better care of our resources. You know, we can be prepared. We don't have to die in famine. And so he's just simply, look at what you've done. Conquest, war, famine, sickness. This is what has prevailed on earth. Do you see why we need to cleanse it? Do you see why we need to change it? This is the history of the earth. And even today, we see all four elements of those. We see conquest. We see war. We see famine. We see sickness. And so the Lord's saying, look at the history of the earth. And then when I have had good people on the earth, look what you do to them. Yeah, you kill them. You know, when I have had righteous people who would make a difference and bring about your, you know, blessings and, and help the earth, you know, survive, look what you do to them. You destroy them. You kill them. So that's why as I open up the sixth seal, things are going to change. And so very quick, previous 5,000 years history of the earth to say blood, sickness, conquest, war. So now we're going to begin to change it. 
So now he's going to open up the sixth seal as we begin to the, the cleansing process. We are going to begin to change things. And first, there's going to be a shaking. We're going to shake. So when he opens up the sixth seal in verse 12, there's a great earthquake. Now, literal and figurative. Don't see it as just literal. Are earthquakes involved in the sixth seal? Yes. Are earthquakes involved? Is there going to be even a big earthquake? Sure, probably. But again, don't be afraid. We're going to be prepared. We're going to see that. We have prophets, seers, and revelators who will prepare us. Remember Joseph of Egypt. There was a famine that they were prepared for. Yes, there's going to be an earthquake. But the other thing is, as you read the rest of chapter 6, there seems to be a shaking. So as we go into this, there's a shaking here. It talks about a shaking, but this is not necessarily a literal shaking of the earth as much as it's symbolic. Now, notice in verse 13, he talks about untimely figs. Now, if you follow that symbolism in the footnote, it's the, it's the fruit that withered on the tree that wasn't picked. It withers on the tree. Now, how, how do you get rid of all those apples that didn't, you know, weren't picked and they're sit, they're hanging on the tree and they've gone bad and they're all withered up. You shake it, right? You shake the limb. So what the earth is doing, what the Lord is doing is he's shaking the earth in the latter days to see what falls, to get rid of the untimely figs. And then the question at the very end of chapter six is who's going to be left standing? But we are in a shaking period. Basically, this whole sixth seal has been a shaking. So, Mike, tell us some of the things that have been shaken. I think this is one of the things that lends uh, the book of Revelation to perpetual relevance. There's a book written by Jonathan Kirsch. I remember reading it a while back. Um, this book's called The History of the End of the World, How the Most Controversial Book in the Bible Changed the Course of Western Civilization. And one of his points is that over over time, We've interpreted the book of Revelation so many different ways, and I think that's one of the awesome things about the book is because it has perpetual relevance. What is this earthquake? And I think, I think I don't know. I think that we could look at it so many different ways. For example, if you and I lived during the time of, you know, the end of the 400s, the mid, you know, the mid fifth century, we would say, well, clearly the book of Revelation has been fulfilled. Rome has fallen. The whore of all the earth has collapsed. The end of the world is imminent. And yet it didn't happen. But did the earth shake? And then, of course, you get into some of the dark times of empires rising and falling for centuries. Uh, I remember learning about 1588 with the, the competition between Spain and England and how Spain ruled the world. And historians have written, had 1588, August of 1588 never happened, perhaps America would have been a Catholic colony. But what happened? Queen Elizabeth and Sir Francis Drake, they literally changed the world. There was an earthquake and a, a shift of empire and who became in charge in 1588. And, and the rest is history, as it were. England became the, the big empire. And this, that's another thing that the book of Revelation is addressing is, well, who's really in charge? And in the background, it's the lamb who was slain. But we have over and over again these repetitions, these earthquakes that keep happening. I remember being a young man sitting in seminary, and I had a, a seminary teacher who said, one day missionaries would be in Russia. And I laughed, and I said, we will never have missionaries in Russia. His name was Todd Hancock. I remember him to this day. And he said, he said to me, Mike, I don't know how, but I know it will happen. And I looked at him, and I said, Brother Hancock, I don't think so. And I was wrong. Essentially, these these earthquakes, you know, you live a while long enough and, and you, you spend some time on this earth and you realize stuff happens. The earth shakes. 
and the kingdom rolls forward. And so whether it's the destruction of communism or Rome or whatever great empire, whatever you think is the reality that will never change, I think this chapter is trying to say, well, or hang false, on. false ideas. Sometimes it's yeah. not empires at all. It's false ideas. It's culture ideas. Yeah. And, you know, what's hip and what's happening. And, and this is a very hot topic right now. Well, we live in a day where the earth is shaking. I just love the image yes. of someone shaking the branches of a tree so that everything falls out that's not rooted and grounded yes. and, and secured to the tree and, and communism fell out of the tree and a lot of these false ideas are going to fall out of the tree and so are you holding on to bad fruit are you holding on to something that's going to be shaken and fallen or will you be left standing at the end yeah. will you be part of the enduring tree or will you be the untimely fig it's just a beautiful image yeah. don't hold on to things that are that are being shaken and are going to fall and and dissolve and come to naught hold on to those things that are enduring that are going to be there in the end. And that closing question in verse 17, who is going to be able to stand is going to be addressed when we come back to Revelation 7. So thanks for joining us and we will see you next time.